Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. A scientist manipulated the DNA of human embryos for the first time in 2018. Matthew Cobb, a historian and a professor of zoology in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Manchester, writes in his latest book titled As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age, that that's something many scientists have actually feared since the start of the genetic age. And he raises ethical, social, and cultural issues throughout his book while relating stories about genetic advances and their implications and of the humans involved in these stories. It's published by Basic Books and brings Professor Cobb to our show now. Welcome. Yes, I am indeed. You investigate three areas of molecular biology that raise serious safety and ethical concerns. Heritable human gene editing, gene drives, and viral gain of function research. Are you concerned about both the cultural and political implications and reactions to those benefits? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty much everything that, that worries me. Uh, it's the implications of these technologies being applied without due consideration and uh debate and agreement on a planetary scale, because these are all things that have consequences for us all as humans, either because in the case of uh, human germline editing, they actually challenge what it is to be human. Uh, and I think we should all have some kind of say in that. Um, in, the case of, uh, in the case of gene drives, these are ways of potentially uh, getting rid of malaria, but also potentially uh, the worry is that they could create uh, an uncontrollable change in the ecosystem. And well, again, that needs to be something that needs to be agreed globally, not just by particular groups. In tracing the history of genetic engineering, are you arguing that this revolutionary te technology is far too important to be left to the scientists? And if it is... Who should it be left to? <laughs> well, I think it needs to involve all of us, which is kind of pat response and uh, it raises the obvious issue of, OK, well, this is really complicated science. So, you know, how can we all have a say in it? But if you think about it, there are, there are other very dangerous technologies which we employ on a planetary scale and which there is regulation, they're subject to regulation and control. I'll just give you two very simple examples. One of them is really quite complicated and most of us don't have anything to do with it, and that's nuclear power. But mm. nuclear energy is controlled by the International Atomic Energy uh, Authority. And they, if you decide to start, country decides to start uh, building nuclear reactors or begin building, uh, using nuclear power in a way that could be uh, malintentioned, for example, leading to the production of a nuclear weapon, then there are sanctions that can be imposed. And we've seen this in the case of Iran. So there are structures for dealing with technology which is really really complicated and potentially fantastic but also potentially dangerous the other example is far more uh, ordinary and it's civil aviation if you think about it you know civil aviation is incredibly dangerous you get in this big metal mm -hmm. tube you're whizzed around the planet and yet in the vast majority of cases you land perfectly safely and that is because there is something called the international civil aviation organization which regulates uh, airports and airlines and so on and those two structures were set up to regulate dangerous potentially transformational technology in the years after the second world war and that's the kind of structure that we need today well, well, since this technology has the power to change life itself, who can we trust to keep ingenuity from producing something awful? Are well, regulations too lax? Well, I, I think they and, are... And, they, wait, and did, let, let me do one more yeah. thing. Does our ability to manipulate genes give humans godlike powers? Well, that, that is the title of my, my book, uh -huh. so it was... <laughs> I As guess. gods, I was, obviously. I, 
Yeah, it's the title in the US. Yeah. Um, we have a different title in the UK. So yes, rather, I was curious about that. <laughs> um, the title so, yeah. in Great Britain is The Genetic Age, Our Perilous Quest to Edit Life. I guess yeah. if you, you, the, uh, the title here, As Gods, uh, A Moral History of the Genetic Age, Genetic Age is a bit more dramatic. Yeah, um, uh, different publishers have different tastes. And mm -hmm. I guess different audiences have different tastes. The book's the same apart from the title. Um, so to answer your question, do we have godlike abilities? Well, pretty much we're getting there in that uh, we have the ability to change DNA in virtually any organism. And in general, this is relatively benign and curiosity driven. Some of my favorite papers are those that have been altering the, uh, the olfactory system, the smell system of ants. And I'm interested in that because mm. I'm interested in smell and I'm interested in ants. On the other hand, mm. that isn't being done in order to create uh, a race of super ants that are going to sting us all to death or anything. It's just trying to understand how ants behave and how they work. So some of that uh, technology is, as I say, extremely benign uh, in every respect. On the other hand, you do want to be careful that the organisms that you're manipulating, even with simple curiosity, are not going to inadvertently escape, produce uh, alterations to the ecosystem and so on. So we do have those mm -hmm. kind of abilities. I, th I think one area that we need to be very careful about is on human germline editing. So those are genetic changes that can be passed down the generations. And at the moment, for technical reasons to do with the way that our embryos grow, at the moment, it looks as though that is very, very difficult to uh, perform safely, even if you were to think it's a good idea, which I do not. I think it's a, something that should be uh, not undertaken under any circumstances. On the other hand, editing of our genes that are in our bodies that aren't going to be transmitted to the next generation, that aren't in the eggs or the sperm or in a single cell embryo, that is going to have transformational uh, consequences for medicine. Indeed, it's already begun to uh, to do so. There's the possibility, for example, of curing sickle cell disease, which is a, a major problem in particular for people of, uh, of uh, African origin. So many African-Americans, for example, but it's not exclusively in the African-American mm. or African communities. And those diseases we can now cure by changing genes in red blood cells. So this is something that, at least in principle, can have enormous transformational effects. And that is something that, you know, since the sickle cell anemia, was uh, sickle cell disease was discovered at the beginning of the 20th century, has been a dream that has been unachievable until the last few years. Well, can we use this technology to uh, prevent future pandemics like the COVID pandemic. There are actually some uh, conspiracy theorists who think that uh, the COVID pandemic was created by the kind of things you're, you're warning us about here. Yes, indeed. Um, there are those ideas. I mean, I'll, I'll preface, as I always do, everything that I'm about to say with the statement that there is no evidence at all hmm. that uh, COVID was engineered. Uh, there is an argument about whether it may have escaped from a laboratory where it was being studied quite legitimately, or if it, or as it almost certainly was, I would argue, a natural spillover event from wild populations, as we've seen before, as we saw in 2002 with the SARS pandemic, which it must be said took 15 years to identify mm. the precise species. So it's quite complicated business. But the the principal answer to the question is that there are there are scientists who, since the beginning of this century, have become convinced that one of the ways we can uh, respond. We can predict the course of future pandemics, which we know are going to come because we're in close contact with animals all over the world and diseases are going to come from animals, change slightly and infect us. Uh, one of the ways we can predict what they will do is by trying to, it sounds a bit crazy, but uh, trying to make them as dangerous as possible in the safety mm. of the lab. That is that you want to know, OK, we've got this particular disease, bird flu, for example, which is very unpleasant. Um, and 
it kills birds. We've got an outbreak of it in the UK at the, at the moment. Loads and loads of seabirds in particular are dying. It's really very tragic. It doesn't normally infect humans unless you touch birds, which is why if you find a dead bird, you should just leave it. Um, but scientists about 12 years ago decided to see if they could make bird flu transmissible through the air, if that was technically possible. That is, if it was something we should be worried about the next time that there's a bird flu uh, pandemic with the, the threat of spilling over into humans. And they were able to do that, uh, tragically, and that absolutely scared the wits out of them. They, one of them said, we've done something really, really stupid. They had mutated mm. uh, the bird flu virus so that it could be transmitted uh, through the air exactly like COVID is. Now, that led to uh, a research pause. So the researchers themselves said, goodness me, this is terrifying. We must stop doing this work. Yeah. But the they scientists, say, scientists have called for temporary halts of these kinds of experiments four times over the past 50 that's, years. That's right. That's right. And this is unique to genetics. It's very striking that no other science, not even the scientists working on the Manhattan Project during the Second World War, building the atomic bomb, nobody in any other field has said, wait a minute, we must stop and take stock of what we're doing here. Geneticists have done that four times. Now, I don't think that's a reason to be complacent and say, OK, we can leave it to those guys in the white coats. But it does show that there's a a tradition of, well, let's call it social responsibility uh, in genetics, where the scientists have thought very, very hard about the threats, the potential threats of what they're doing. Um, but their answer has generally been to say, well, we can do this if we have safer containment facilities, you know, if we got more effective filters or, or whatever. Um, and they're not generally asking the question of, should we be doing this? Is this the right thing to do? And going back to these uh, studies of diseases, that is where there is an argument. So these are called gain of function studies because you're increasing the, the dangerousness of one particular function, the ability of the disease to spread, for example. Um, and the scientists concerned involved, I, I really must emphasize this, they are not crazy people. I'm, I might think they're wrong, but I don't. They're certainly not crazy. They are well-meaning. They want to save lives. They want to. Be and some, but some have crossed the line. You say, and we'll, we'll go into some of those stories. Well, I'm not sure they've crossed. I think they've done some dangerous things, but they have also realised that. My my well, the, own view, and I'm I'm not an epidemiologist, and I'm not a virologist. My own view is that this research should not take place. And I think one of the reasons for that is their explanation is, okay, this will help us predict the course of future pandemics. We're living in a pandemic. None of that research was in any way useful in the way that we responded to the pandemic. So uh, I, I think this is stuff that is very, very dangerous and probably should not be done. My guest is Matthew Cobb, whose latest book is As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age published in this country by Basic Books. This is Leonard Lopate at Large at WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. But you, you point out that humans have been changing nature since the dawn of agriculture. Hasn't that been largely a good thing? How does oh, yeah. what we're writing, talking about here relate to that? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, and, and overall, I think that uh, genetic engineering, the last... Uh, 50 years, because last year we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the first experiment that finally was able to make a deliberate, directed change in a, in a gene. Um, I think overwhelmingly it's been it's been positive. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I just think that there are now we've kind of got used to it. And there are these three areas that are now very much uh, on the on on the agenda and affecting potentially our lives. And I think people need to be aware of them and need to think very hard about whether they're in favour of them or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you say since agriculture, and even since before then, I mean, humans are predators. So we'll have changed, inadvertently changed the genes of the animals and plants we've been eating for, the, well, ever since we turned up, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Agriculture led to us starting to deliberately change. Eventually, we realized we could select different groups of animals or plants and they would uh, do what we wanted to better. But we didn't understand anything about the process. We didn't understand anything about genes or whatever. And it's only 50 years ago 
when Paul Berg, uh, Stanford University, uh, performed an experiment in which he was able to fuse DNA from a virus and from a bacterium. And called that, recombinant DNA technology? That's right. That's what it was called back in the day. Um, yeah. There's been loads of different terms that have been yeah. used to describe this. It's kind of a, a continual arms race between the scientists coming up with a, a term and then the public getting a bit wary of it. And so a slightly different technique is adopted and a slightly different term is, is used. We now talk about gene editing, right, um, hmm. which sounds really benign and straightforward and nice and easy. Um, but it's really all the same stuff. It's all genetic engineering or recombinant DNA, if you prefer. Did it all begin when uh, James Watson and Francis Crick discovered the double helix structure, structure of DNA in 1953? Because well, I, I, was, I was told that that was a turning point in the history of science when I, when I oh, was yeah. in high school. Oh, yeah. Well, it's yeah, absolutely. Uh, and indeed, I, I'm writing about that now. I'm writing a biography of Francis Crick, and I'm currently writing uh, the chapters about the double helix. And yes, it is. I've just written today. It was one of the most significant scientific discoveries ever. Absolutely. Because it, it has changed biology. It's changed medicine. But all that did, all in many inverted commas, was to say, well, this is the, the basis of heredity. But straight away, you could see that in principle, it might be possible to alter the sequence of a DNA molecule deliberately in order to make it do something that we wanted to do. And this was speculated on uh, within a few years. People were wondering whether this was going to be possible. And a whole in the 1960s, a whole set of biochemical tools were developed, which eventually Paul Berg combined in this technique, as I said, for combining DNA from very, very different organisms. And that really is the beginning of this process that now sees us uh, with this extraordinary ability, in particular since the development of what's called CRISPR uh, mm. gene uh, editing, uh, over the last cent the last decade, um, well, that has enabled was, uh, us to, to to carry out this ast astonishing transformation. Emmanuel uh, Charpentier and Jennifer Davda won a Nobel Prize for uh, for CRISPR. What exactly is CRISPR? I mean, I see um, it all over the place, but I don't know what C R I S P R actually means, other than uh, it knowing that it rewrites DNA sequences. Well, I think that's probably the most important thing. So, yeah, CRISPR is uh, one of these acronyms. So scientists, when they, they discover something, uh, they're often very keen to have a sexy-sounding acronym uh, because it'll get in the journals and it'll get attention. Hmm. And, and if you learn what it means, it doesn't actually help you because what it refers to is genetic sequences which were observed in bacteria at the beginning of this century. Um, which nobody really knew the, the function of. Indeed, when they were talking about what they should call it, they nearly called it spider. So uh, they decided CRISPR sounded a bit sexier. So mm. we were nearly, we could have been talking about spidering our genes. Um, <laughs> and th they were just but trying we're, to understand. But we're, making them, but we're making them CRISPR instead. <laughs> that, well, yeah. I mean, so you can hear straight away that it's got that sexy tinge to uh -huh. it. That's one reason why we've all got very excited about it, not just because of the technology. But at the time when this term was coined, there was no idea about what the sequences were or how they could be employed. And it took about 10 years before scientists realized that this particular set of sequence found in bacteria could be used to uh, um, program. I think that's the key thing to get over. You can program this. You can use these sequences that produce various enzymes to change any DNA. If you can get the CRISPR enzymes and various proteins into the cell you want to change and you know the sequence you want to alter, then you can transform a particular cell. So this is something that uh, Dowden and Charpentier showed in 2012. They could use to uh, transform a bacterial cell, any bacterial cell, to introduce any gene into it. So this system immediately became amazingly flexible and cheap. I think that's a very important point to get over, that 
there were gene editing techniques that had been around for the previous kind of eight years or so, but they were amazingly expensive. It cost, you know, half a million dollars to, to change two or three genes. Now you could do the same thing for $100. It was a complete transformation in ease and in cost, which meant that very rapidly labs all over the world uh, not just biomedical researchers, but as I said, basic biologists interested in all sorts of weird and wonderful organisms started using it. But doesn't it have its limitations? Um, uh, are, are you arguing in this book that although CRISPR is a powerful tool, it isn't a panacea for human disease? It doesn't give humans absolute control over genetic DNA? Well, in, in some respects, yes, but in particular, as I said, with the regard to uh, manipulating embryos, it turns out now we've, known, we've discovered in the last two or three years, because of the way that the embryo is changing, it's, it's a general rule, in fact, you need to know not, I said earlier on, uh, you, if you knew the sequence and you could get the stuff into the cell, it would work. Yeah, that's a bit of an oversimplification. Sometimes cells aren't in the right state for various complicated reasons we don't fully understand, and the editing can go quite unpleasantly wrong. So yeah. there's a lot of safety protocols that are required in a, if you're going to apply this to any human being. Clearly, if you're working on, say, a fly or an ant, if it goes wrong, it's no big mm. deal. You've wasted your time and, well, that's sad for the ant or the fly, but it's not a major issue. With a, anything to do with humans, however, you have to be far more sensitive. So there is a, uh, an awful lot of safety work being done. Um, I and mean, haven't geneticists called four times for a halt to further work on this so that appropriate containment facilities and protocols can be done because they have feared that this research could create monster-like germs? Yeah, I mean, that was the first, it happened virtually straight away as soon as, uh, in fact, the first pause came before Paul Berg had even done his experiment. Um, mm. There was a, an argument, uh, a man called Bob Pollack, who was a young researcher at the time, raised with Berg the prospect that what he was going to do was potentially dangerous and potentially could cause an epidemic of cancer. Uh, Berg I mean, this was just the two of them arguing on the phone, you know, in 1971, in fact. So before the experiment had been done, the issue was raised. Berg eventually decided, well, that particular experiment, he wasn't really interested in it. And so it was unlikely that anything bad would happen, but he wasn't going to do it. So even before the first experiment was done, people have been concerned about this potential. Um, but as I said, these research pauses have generally been about how we can do it safely uh, rather than rather than, is it the right thing to do? And I'm going to get this wrong, but in Jurassic Park, there's a, uh, a quote in the film in which um, Jeff Goldblum's character says, your scientists were so busy worrying about whether they could do this, they didn't worry about whether they should do this. Uh -huh. I think I got that right, yeah. So, and, and that, the first Jurassic Park film encapsulates this whole, which is actually about genetic engineering, not crazy CGI monsters, you know. The issue... Uh, is uh, should you do this? Is this the right thing to do? And the message very clearly from the first film is no. Uh, they then went on to make lots of other films where people hmm. would, were very happy that they did because they could watch CGI monsters. But the, the ethical issue was lost uh, after the first film. How have the National Institutes of Health and other regulatory agencies responded to the calls of scientists to halt further work until uh, containment facilities and protocols can be developed? Well, at the, at the outset, so in 1975, there was a big meeting that took place uh, at a place called Asilomar on the California coast. Uh, and this was the, a kind, became a kind of model for biologists, biologists in general to think about how you can uh, control technology. And basically, um, all the scientists in the world, pretty much, who were working in this area, 200 or so people, got together with journalists present. So there are about 20 journalists there from all the uh, major uh, news outlets at the time. Uh, and they debated how this should uh, take place. And that was partly organized by the National Academies of Science with the agreement of uh, the NIH. And the outcome of that was a set of protocols that would enable the work to go ahead uh, safely. But of course, 
those protocols only applied to NIH funding. Anybody with private money, and very soon there's an awful lot of private money going into this as startups were created, as people realized that they could make a lot of money out of this uh, new technology, creating drugs, for example, Insulin, one of the big success stories of genetic engineering is that all insulin we now use, and there's an awful lot of it being used, is produced in genetically altered microbes. That should have led to a collapse in the price. It was predicted to in the 1970s, but for rather different reasons, in the US at least, that hasn't happened. Uh, insulin is very cheap in, in, the, in Europe and the UK. Uh, so we've got different healthcare systems. That's a different issue. But so the NIH has been consistent in pushing for uh, controls and regulations, but it only has its reach is only as far as its financing. So, for example, in the US, you can carry out genetic manipulation of an embryo in a private lab, lab, if you've got private funding and there are such places and there are such people, then you can do what you want. You can't use federal funding or federal facilities because you're not allowed to manipulate stem cells. So the US has got this very strange mixture whereby there's very strict control on federal expenditure and, and facilities, but not on pri the private sector. In the UK and Europe, manipulation of embryos is simply illegal. Uh, you're not allowed to do it. So wh whoever you are and however much money you've got, you can't do it. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Professor Matthew Cobb. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, the one we're discussing, As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number two, WBAI.org, or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we will be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Matthew Cobb, uh, the book again, As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age from Basic Books. He's a professor of zoology in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Manchester, written several books on the history of science. And in 2021, the Genetic Society honored him with the JBS Haldane Lecture, an annual award given to, quote, an individual for outstanding ability to communicate topical subjects in genetics research widely interpreted to be interest, an interested lay audience. And uh, I guess you've discovered that um, some people actually uh, in the lay audience are interested in learning more about this. <laughs> well, I hope so. I'd like them to buy the book. And I would like them to listen to that song you've just played. I was really <laughs> pleased you used that. Um, that little clip you just played. People can yeah. find it on YouTube. It's uh, an amazingly talented guy called Acapella Science. And uh, as you've just heard, it's Mr. Sandman, but it explains how CRISPR works. And I play that to my students and then they got it as an earworm in their heads for the rest of their lives, I think. Oh, I didn't know that. I just found it and thought, gee, that would be great to play during this conversation. It's fantastic. It's brilliant. <laughs> oh, I want to get back to um, Asilomar, which you mentioned earlier. Wasn't Peter Berg's decision to organize at the Asilomar conference motivated by plans by Janet Mertz, a, a graduate student in biochemistry at Stanford, to conduct a cutting-edge but potentially dangerous experiment involving recombinant DNA? Well, kind of. Janet Mertz was the, the PhD student who was planning to do the experiment that led um, Bob Pollack to complain in 1971, which I mentioned earlier yeah. on. Uh, Mertz then uh, didn't do the experiment. She decided herself she didn't want to do it. Um, and she went on to working with Berg to develop the techniques for what rapidly uh, 
as you've said, became known as recombinant DNA. What the key breakthrough happened in 1973 um, when Stan Cohen and Herb Boyer, Herb Boyer went on to co-found Genentech, one of the giants of genetic engineering. Mm. Um, was that a good thing? What founding Genentech? It's it's kind of the commercialization of recombinant DNA technology, isn't it? Well, I, I I'll tell you. Um, so I'm not at all a, a kind of enterprise guy, right? I'm not interested mm. in commercial applications and stuff like that. Um, I'm I'm a very old school kind of uh, UK socialist. But reading and writing about the chapters about how they set up Genentech and the excitement of the race to uh, what's called clone uh, genes that could produce insulin. That was probably the most interesting and fascinating bit of the book. So I got an insight, uh, a vicarious insight into what it's like working in a, in a startup. And it, when it works, of course, when it all goes successful and you make millions of dollars. And that was really, really exciting. Um, I... Yeah, I mean, it's, they they drove innovation. I mean, and that's what they're supposed to do, these companies. And like with Apple, and I'm speaking to you on an Apple product, uh, you know, they were mm. set up. Those two companies, Apple and Genentech, were set up in the same week in Silicon Valley. So they're both part of that period in the mid-1970s where some young men in the late 20s, early 30s thought that they could change the world. Most of them didn't. But some of them did. Hmm. Approximately 140 scientists attended Asilomar with the aim of developing, quote, biosecurity guidelines that would allow recombinant DNA research to recommence. Uh, you know that many of the attendees felt that academic freedom effectively gave them the right to do whatever they wanted. Yeah, that was um, the some of the UK uh, participants were a bit bemused by that because we don't have the same kind of uh, traditions in uh, UK science and academia as you do in the US. Um, so they, they 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 thought that was a bit odd and that pe some people who were there just thought, yeah, they should be allowed to get on with whatever the hell they wanted without anybody interfering with them. Uh, and the story goes and the accounts of the time suggest this is true, that one of the things that finally convinced those people who were very much you know, gung-ho, you know, we can just do what we want, uh, was when a lawyer explained uh, on the penultimate evening that uh, the U.S. health and safety legislation required the uh, university laboratories to be free of risk, not relatively free, but free. And therefore, if they were doing something that was dangerous the, and that, went wrong and somebody say got a disease then they could be prosecuted they could be sued for millions of dollars and that apparently sent a chill through the room and people decided okay well maybe we do need to be responsible we can't just go ahead and do whatever the hell we like well don't you contend that although that asilomar conference in 1975 which led to the development of safety guidelines for a common in DNA research was well intended. It was limited by its focus on laboratory safety and lacked sufficient discussion of, of the broader ethical issues that surround genetic manipulation. Yeah, that's it, it's very striking that I mean, everybody knows about this meeting. So, students in science, in, in biology, are taught about this meeting and geneticists are rightly very proud of it. But even, you know, scientists who are long in the tooth have been surprised when I've explained to them that no ethical discussion took place at all. It was all about the safety protocols and then finally the potential legal threat if it all went horribly wrong. Um, there was... They ruled out at the beginning of the meeting any discussion of the three areas uh, that I think are particularly concerning, the potential for biological warfare, uh, the use of uh, DNA, manipulating DNA in humans, or the possibility of genetic alteration of environments. And those are the three areas that uh, are very significant. And their argument was, well, we don't know anything about ethics. We don't know anything about mm. that stuff. We just know about molecular biology and safety protocols. Uh, so that's what we're going to discuss. But we now know that 
the there was a Soviet delegation at that meeting. There were five Soviet scientists, three of them who were at the meeting, who were wide, widely perceived by the young Americans at the meeting as being these old duffers, these old old geezers from uh, the Academy of Sciences in Moscow, uh, who knew nothing, who understood nothing. In fact, three of them had convinced, already convinced, Premier Brezhnev of the Soviet Union to set up a biological weapons program using these embryonic genetic engineering techniques. So under people's mm. very nose, there was this very, very dark side of genetic engineering, which was already being applied in the Soviet Union and continued to be so. And who knows, probably still is today uh, in Putin's Russia. One of the important stories you tell uh, occurred more recently in 2018 when was it Dr. He Jiankui? Uh, he Jiankui, yeah. Yeah. He is how he pronounces it. He, okay. Yeah. A, Chi a Chinese scientist announced that he'd secretly ignored guidelines prohibiting experiments with humans and, and manipulated the DNA of human embryos which led to producing two baby girls designed not to inherit their father's HIV. Now, on the one hand, that sounds like a good idea, especially for those girls, but what are the implications of it for society as a whole? Yeah, well, I mean, what, it wasn't quite as simple as that. What he was doing was he wanted to alter a gene uh, to that is normally expressed in all our bodies called CCR5, and he wanted to change it slightly so that uh, it would be the same as some people around the world can indulge in all sorts of risky behavior and still not get HIV. And they have this mutation, which doesn't make them immune to HIV, but makes it much less likely they're going to get it. And what he wanted to do was to change these girls, these embryos genes, so that they were like this natural but rare form of the CCR5 gene. So he wasn't actually going to cure the girls of anything. They weren't ill. He was going to provide them, he said, with a way of not getting HIV. There are two things to say about this. Firstly, we all know how not to get HIV. There's you know, mm. well-attested ways of doing it that we've known for 30-odd years now. Secondly, um, if you do have this particular version of the CCR5 gene, you are indeed less likely to get HIV, but you are also more likely to get other diseases and potentially die of them. So there's no, it's not a, it's not a, you know, a silver bullet that makes you immune to everything. It can make you more vulnerable to other things. But above all, these girls were normal. There was nothing wrong with them. The fathers, the father of their girls. Well, do we know how it'll affect their long? No. Well, that, let, let, me, let me explain quite how awful it was. So, firstly, he didn't introduce the mutations he wanted to. So the, the experiment didn't work in that sense. Other mm. mutations were introduced, including some that we have not seen in any other human. Still in this CCR5 gene. We don't know about the rest of their genome. We now know, as I said earlier on, that in fact, if you're manipulating mammalian embryos, not just human embryos, but mammalian embryos, they are very sensitive to what you do. And sometimes CRISPR can go horribly wrong and you can lose whole chromosomes. Huge, great big chunks of your DNA can be chewed up by this process. We don't know if that happened with these girls or not. Her said they were quite normal, but I don't think there's any reason to believe anything that he said. Um, Finally, Do we know if they've if they if they've had children? Well, they they they're too well, young they're about still five, to have they're children. They're about three now. They're about yeah. three or four. So okay. Yeah, but but it does sound like Brave New World. It sounds like something Aldous Huxley might have come up with. Well, yeah, except Huxley's technique, which was entirely fictional, worked. So <laughs> <laughs> this went wrong. Furthermore, not every cell in their bodies has been affected. So they're what's called mosaic. So some of the cells have been altered. Others haven't. So they're a mixture, these girls. Uh, we don't know what's going to... In fact, there's a third baby been born uh, since. We, th that, was, that was announced about a year ago. Um, so we don't know what's going to happen to them. The Chinese government, quite rightly, is not turning them into a circus. I mean, all you can hope is they're going to be fine. Uh, they've got parents who've made, a, I think, a big mistake, but they've got parents who love them. Uh, and I hope that they are being given all the 
all the support financial and uh, health-wise that they need from the Chinese state. But, I mean, it, there is a complete news blackout on, on, on their, their situation, which, as I say, is, is quite right. They need to be allowed, to, if they can, to lead perfectly normal lives. But remember, if they do have children, their DNA that they will pass on will be altered by this botched experiment by this man who was uh, sentenced to three years in prison and huge fine and was banned from ever working on uh, assisted reproduction again. He's out of jail now, um, but I hope he won't go anywhere near a pipette or an embryo <laughs> ever again. My guest is Matthew Cobb, whose latest book is As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age, published by Basic Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. What about the development of an, a political reaction to genetically modified foods? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, so GM crops. I mean, again, this was something that I, I learned about in writing the book. I didn't know much about uh, I know about genetic, the history of genetic engineering at the beginning, and I know about applying it uh, in the lab. I use it in my work on the, the sense of smell in maggots, which is what I study. So I, I, I knew how it worked, but I didn't know much about the, the actual process that was involved in developing genetically modified plants, GMOs, as they're generally called. And again, I found this absolutely fascinating, learning about how they had done it and above all, why they had done it. So the big bad... Uh, for most people who are suspicious about GM crops, is Monsanto, the company that now no longer exists. It's been taken over by Bayer. Um, but they're the people who pioneered GM crops. And I was fascinated to discover why they wanted to make GM crops. What they wanted to do, their company was based on uh, producing, uh, producing insecticides, producing uh, astroturf, you know, everything that was kind of artificial. And they said... We've got to get out of chemicals. They wanted to find a way of providing the benefits without chucking chemicals all over the planet, which is, I'm sure most people would agree, a good thing. It was, they were well-meaning. So what they thought they could do was, and they succeeded, was to introduce into crop plants a gene from a bacterium that produces a natural insecticide. And indeed, organic farmers are allowed to spray this bacterium on their plants and it will stop caterpillars from eating your, 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 the leaves of your crops. So they'd now got the crops that would produce this natural insecticide that humans can ingest, no problem, we're not caterpillars, but will stop just caterpillars that want to eat those leaves from doing so. So it won't have any broader effect on the environment. So this looks like a really good thing and it has reduced the calculations are hundreds of thousands of tons less insecticide have been chucked around the planet uh, because of this initiative. But things also didn't go quite right. Um, and they later started developing uh, ways of introducing uh, herbicide resistant genes so that you could spray your fields with herbicide and your crops would resist that, but the weeds would die. Um, and this has led to a huge debate uh, and a lot of argument around the world. My own personal view is that uh, GM crops quite safe to eat. I've been to the US. Most uh, most corn in the US, what we would call maize, most corn in the US is is GM. And you know I've eaten all sorts of stuff, and I'm fine. And everybody in the US is fine. So there's nothing to worry about about eating it. But there are consequences to the environment that I think are extremely uh, significant. Most well, I want to get to that in a moment, but you write about the development in opposition to golden rice, which yeah. is genetically engineered to have higher levels of uh, B-carotene to yeah. address vitamin A deficiency in certain populations. Um, is, why was it opposed? Well, uh, there was d deep suspicion. So... <laughs> This has been an incredibly um, hyperventilated argument that's taken place basically in the in the Far East. So it doesn't affect it's not being used in, in America or Europe because we don't have uh, those those mm. problems. Uh, the Philippines. Yeah, it's mainly in the Philippines that's been an issue. And. 
tens, hundreds of thousands of people go blind every year. So it's an extreme, again, it's a very well-meaning idea. You can supply the, uh, the necessary vitamin or the precursor to the vitamin in the rice. Therefore, you don't have to take a supplement. You don't have an extra pill or you don't have to add anything to your food. This was the clever idea. There was a lot of suspicion from uh, those who were opposed to it, Greenpeace in particular, arguing that this was all a plot. Um, but one of the issues was the scientists gave up all the patents. They, there was no money being made out of this. On the other hand, the crops that they developed weren't the right crops for many of these places where to be grown in that they had to choose, if you're going to carry out a genetic manipulation, you've got to choose the uh, an organism that is happy having these extra bits of DNA put into it. So they chose forms of rice that they could grow easily in the laboratory and in their test fields, but they weren't the best strains of rice for growing in all the multiple localities in the Philippines. So this was uh, kind of ecologically crude. And sometimes the experiments didn't work and they had to withdraw the various versions of golden rice um, because the, the crops weren't healthy enough. So there's been this big argument with accusations of genocide on both sides, which is kind of pretty extreme talk. Mm. Um, and the Philippines has recently had a new public health campaign of getting people to take vitamin supplements, and they've reduced quite substantially the frequency of blindness uh, produced by these vitamin deficiencies. But you know, one person going blind is still too many. So it seems to me that if there were a way of making the crop using the right strains of rice that grow locally, there was there's no reason not to embrace this technology. Um, it's possible that CRISPR gene editing of the uh, of rice will enable this to make this possible. Uh, I don't know, but I think one of the lessons here is that. You know, an old technology, that is vitamin supplements, can do a lot of the work. So scientists are obviously often very keen and politicians as well on, you know, kind of sexy tech fixes. But sometimes old school ways of doing things are simpler and maybe more safe. Well, we only have uh, a couple of minutes left, but I want to address something else that you you write, it's clear to me that the model of self-regulation adopted in the 1970s cannot meet the needs of the discoveries of the 21st century, and that the issues are too important to be left to the scientists. Didn't uh, Fyodor Urnov, a prominent genome editing researcher, tell you that human heritable genome editing is a solution in need of a problem? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very uh, sharp comment. I mean, uh, Theodore is a uh, he had a, recently had a, an op ed in the uh, New York Times, which some of your listeners may have uh, may have read um, talking. He, he works. He focuses on what's called somatic engineering. So that's changing the cells in our bodies in adults and children, not in the embryo. Mm. And he's very keen on applying that technology and finding equitable ways. Because you've got to remember, as another genetic engineer said, we live in a world in which people don't have equal access to eyeglasses. So mm. how are we going to have an equal access to this incredibly expensive and complicated genetic technology? Um, I, I think, yeah, I mean, my view on germline editing is that it shouldn't be done. There's no reason to do it. It's dangerous. Uh, there are virtually no, very, very few couples, a handful, a few dozen couples around the world could benefit from it if they have genetic diseases. There are other ways of dealing with uh, the threat of genetic diseases in families that know that they have them without going down this very dangerous and unethical uh, route. On the other hand, for medicine, for changing lives that are already in existence, for curing people of things like sickle cell disease and other diseases uh, that we will be able to change, I think that is absolutely tremendous. I want to thank you so much for being on our show. I've been speaking with Professor Matthew Cobb, uh, Professor of Zoology at the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Manchester, about his latest book, As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age, which is published by Basic Books. It's been a great pleasure talking with you, even though 
You're, what you're telling me is kind of scaring the heck out of me. <laughs> well, that's that's the idea. I want people to be concerned so they can be informed and then make informed decisions, uh, whatever that is. But we all need to understand about this. It's been great talking to you, Leonard. Thank you again. Uh, Thank you. That, bring, that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and to Reggie Johnson, our audio engineer, for all the important work they do throughout the week. And thanks to all of our listeners who've, who came through for us recently to get us past a serious fiscal crisis. Unlike my British guests, we don't have the BBC with, uh, where everybody has to pay. Uh, we rely on you. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is lenitlopate at WBAI.org. Now, before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support the station to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. As I said, we just got past a major fiscal crisis, but we don't want to have to deal with another one. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing as God's A Moral History of the Genetic Age by Matthew Cobb. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, however many dollars a month that you feel comfortable supporting us with. And you can do that uh, until you decide that you want to end that. But we really, it really helps us to plan for the future. Uh, but either way, we hope you'll go right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants. We, uh, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. Uh, we are the only station in the New York dial that's 100% listener sponsored. Help us stay alive and thriving with your tax deductible support. And we hope you can join us again on Monday when our guest will be Alice Baumgartner discussing her new book, South to Freedom. Have a great weekend. Oh,